John's Gospel, um, chapter 31, sorry, chapter 3, verses 31 to 36, and that can be found on page 1066 of the Church Bibles in the chairs in front of you. So that's John, chapter 3, verses 31 to 36. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. If you've got a Bible near you, you might like to grab it. Uh, It was page 1066. That's an easy page to remember. Page to remember. remember. Uh, John 3 and verse 31. I don't know what you thought, actually, when you heard those words or or, or when you're looking at them uh, afresh now. Um, But they're a bit odd, aren't they? It's a little bit weird, frankly, some of the words here. This stuff about the one who is above and the one who's from the earth and all this sort of thing. It all seems a bit strange. And I wondered why that was. And apparently, it's because when John wrote these words, he was probably in Patmos. I'm not sure the sea's really that colour, but that's what the adverts say. And uh, by the time John got to wrote, right, what, 20, 30 years after Jesus has died, uh, Christianity has spread. It's spread well beyond uh, Israel, uh, and it's spread certainly through Europe. And probably the other Gospels have been written, but John is writing for people who perhaps don't know all the sort of Bible stories and the Old Testament stuff, who really are coming to this completely new. In fact, he's probably writing, there could well have been some lonely Roman legionary in Sussex right here when John wrote, because Christians spread throughout Europe. So John is writing in, in, in a way that's sort of accessible language, that's sort of unpacked, uh, without any sort of jargon attached to it, so that anybody can get to grips uh, with what he's talking about. So in a very real way, what John is writing, he's writing for us now. And wherever we are, and whatever time we are in, what John wants us to know is that actually Jesus is not just some other great teacher. He's not some other great religious leader that there's something special about Jesus. And he was trying to draw out that Jesus stands out from all the other leaders and people of his time. So probably when John wrote, he was particularly thinking uh, about John the Baptist, because John the Baptist was a great preacher of his time. Uh, And people followed John the Baptist, and there were little churches formed around John the Baptist after he died. 
Patmos is almost directly opposite Ephesus. And we know that Paul came across a little church, as it were, following John the Baptist. That's mentioned in Acts. So, uh, John's specific point, if you like, is that Jesus isn't, is greater than John the Baptist. But actually, he's greater than everybody. And if you look at the scripture, you'll see that John the Baptist himself knew that. When John meets Jesus, he points people away from himself to Jesus. And that's what John, too many Johns in this, aren't there? This is what John, the gospel writer, wants us to know here. He wants us to know that Jesus is different and that we need to respond to him differently than we would to anybody else. That's the message uh, of this passage, really. Now, this is, I know, a really familiar picture. And in some ways, it's a bit corny to use it. One of Dali, Salvador Dali's picture uh, of, the, uh, of the crucifixion. But I love this picture because it absolutely captures the idea behind this passage, doesn't it? There is a human being crucified on a cross. And yet he's clearly actually more than a human being of this world, isn't he? What Dali is capturing, I think, fantastically, is this idea of Jesus being above the world, out of this world. That's exactly what John is saying in this passage. And he makes that passage, that claim, all through the Gospel uh, of John. Um, Here, he's simply making this bold statement, if you like, Jesus is God. And God is Jesus. That's, that's the introduction almost to his gospel. But in Alpha, we've been looking at some of the other evidence that backs that up. Stuff that John will write about. So, we've looked about Jesus' teaching. We've looked at uh, how he fulfills Old Testament prophecy. Uh, the nature of his death. How he came back to life again. All evidence for this claim that John's got in these few verses that Jesus is God. And John's going to write about that later on. He's going to cover all that story as he goes through the Gospel. But right now, he's just trying to get our minds in the right place to understand who it is that we are dealing with. It's worth remembering too that when John writes this stuff, uh, he's not writing some sort of theological essay at Oak Hill or something like that. John was Jesus' best friend, wasn't he? John was on intimate friendship with Jesus. He'd lived with him for a while. He took in his mum after he died. And when he writes, John says elsewhere, he says, I'm writing about stuff that I've really seen. This is is first-hand evidence. This is personal evidence when John makes these extraordinary claims. Well, let's see what they are. What does he say in these three verses? Just, Just look at these verses from 31 onwards. There's some pretty direct statements Uh, He described Jesus as someone who comes from above. He said he was in God's spirit. He says that he's, sorry, he was in God's presence. He says he's full of God's spirit and that he has absolute power. And let's just look at those verses. Verse 31, that's the one that describes Jesus as the one from above. Um, You get something similar. Ephesians 1.20 describes Jesus as seated at God's right hand, in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, 
and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. That is what John is saying is Jesus' home. That's his natural environment. The heavenly places, if you like. It's a different, it's a divine dimension. That's verse 31. Verse 32 says that Jesus has seen and heard what God, God, what God does personally. He's saying Jesus isn't just talking theory, he's speaking from personal experience. That's because he's been with God in heaven. God calls him his son. He's not just a, a man come to earth and God speaking through him. This is someone who's come direct from the presence of God. Look at verse 34. It says that God gives the spirit without limit. Apparently, if you look at the Greek and unpack it and all the rest of it, um, what it's saying is that the spirit gives Jesus, gives him the spirit without limit. Now, those of you who know your Old Testament, you'll know there'll be times when it talks about the spirit coming on people. So Samson, when he sort of wipes out uh, the enemy, or, or coming on Saul, or coming on David, or on some of the prophets, there are times when we hear about the Spirit coming on people. And we know uh, after Jesus leaves, the Holy Spirit uh, comes on the disciples. The Holy Spirit is in every believer here today. And, and there are times when uh, people like Stephen are described as being full of the Holy Spirit. But this is a bit different. This is saying that Jesus is permanently and absolutely full of the Spirit. Now, nobody has ever been in that situation before. Just full of the Spirit all the time. Jesus and the Spirit are effectively one. We, uh, we sang earlier, in that first hymn, we sang those words, the Godhead, three in one. And actually, verse 34, you've got quite a good little introduction to the Trinity. For those of you who want to uh, study that a bit further, you have Father, Son and Spirit, all mentioned in just a few words. And then look at verse 35. It says that Jesus has everything in his hands, all creation, everything in Jesus' hands. Genesis 1, Jesus was there. That Ephesians 1.20 verse we had earlier goes on to say Jesus is head over all things and that God has put all things under his, under his feet. This is all madness, isn't it? This sort of stuff you can't say about a person. These are astonishing claims that we have to just think about seriously. Jesus is not like anybody else, says John. He is God. He's always been with God. He speaks God's words. He is control, in control of everything. And he is just full of God. So there's no one to compare. Let me read you some names. You can tell me what these folk have in common. Um, right, half a dozen names. Mohammed Salah, Gail King, Jean Gang, Pat McGrath, Alex Morgan, Mukesh Ambani, and your own pal. Now, anybody know what those have got in common? Stunned silence. Muhammad Sali, Gail King, Jean King, Pat McGrath, Alex Morgan, Mukesh Ambani, your own pal. Now, I've heard of one or two of those, possibly, not the rest. They are uh, Time Magazine's 100 most influential people uh, in the world today. 
I'm not sure that's them actually, but that's from the, uh, the Times heading, heading it up. Um, in fact, they're so influential that Time calls them Titans. These are our modern day Titans. These are the people who influence. Now, okay, I admit my ignorance. I haven't heard of, of, of many of them. But however great they are, they're never going to be described as John describes Jesus here. They are actually just human. But, says John, Jesus isn't. Jesus is God. Fully human, fully spirit. When Jesus speaks, God speaks. And John says he holds your future and my future in his hands. Well, talking of holding things in your hands, because John says... If you come to terms with that, then you've got to do something about it and face some implications. You know, when you go on, well, I haven't, but if you go on expedition with Bear Grylls, there's this horrible moment, isn't there, when he's going to pick up some bug and he's going to assure you that it's edible and you're going to say, oh, please don't, but you know he's going to. And then he'll bite the head off and chew it while it wriggles around or whatever, down it goes. And that's bad enough, but then he'll pick one up and offer it to you. And you know that that bug is edible. Your brain is telling you, yes, that's true. I know I can eat that. But, I don't know. I just hope that moment never comes in my life. But, that's sort of what's happening here. Something extraordinary has just been set out in these few verses about Jesus. And it's that moment when we say, okay, now I could see that with my head. But am I prepared to face up to the implications of what that means for me? Put it into practice. And there are two implications I just wanted to pick up uh, about this. Um, Firstly, if what what John says is true, it means that we can trust what Jesus says absolutely 100%. We're in a world where it's quite difficult to know who to believe. It's getting increasingly difficult to know who or what to believe. But verse 33 says that God is truthful, and verse 34 that says, that says God, Jesus speaks as God. So Jesus is speaking truth. And you can compare that with verse 31, where it says, the one who is from the earth speaks as from the earth. So this list earlier, not sure is these people, but never mind. They were, they were sportsmen, they were journalists, uh, they were architects, uh, they were businessmen. And, and I looked at their little sort of accreditation, their awards, you know, why they had been uh, nominated. And I got words like, they're passionate, they're daring, they're honest, they're committed. But not a single one said they were truthful. Not a single one of the titans were described as truthful. And actually, Time magazine got that right. Because, to use John's phrase, these are people of the earth. They are not speaking God's truth. Now, when John uses that phrase, that isn't to say that these titans, or anybody else, are automatically wrong what they're saying. When John uses this phrase, earthly, that isn't the same in sort of theology worlds as worldly. But it just means they're human. 
and what they say is bound to be potentially flawed. There's going to be mistakes in it. There'll be a spin on it. However much we trust people, we have to remember we are not actually listening to God. That would have been true for John the Baptist. It was true for uh, the Titans. It's even true for Bear Grylls. Um, And it'll be true for whoever else you listen to. Whether it's your your favourite blogger, or maybe you follow uh, some sort of agony aunt, uh, maybe you're drawn to other religious leaders like Buddha or, or, or Muhammad, uh, maybe the Pope, maybe, dare I say it, even Phil Moon. They might all be very, very wise, some wiser than others. They might be worth listening to, but actually, John says they may all be great, but the only person who actually brings you God's truth is Jesus' words. Which takes you on to say, well, if that's true, where do I find Jesus' words? How do I find out what Jesus says? And the answer is, it's in here. That's why we've got Bibles everywhere, isn't it? You do find Bibles, I think there's one outside actually, um, where Jesus' words are in red ink. Um, They're called red-line Bibles or something, and I think there is one lying around there. And that's a little bit misleading actually. Because Jesus doesn't just speak through the words in inverted commas where it says Jesus said. Jesus is speaking right through this book. When Jesus uh, is speaking, he quotes, I think it's 24 out of the 39 books of the Old Testament. So he endorses kind of what's in this book. And in fact, later on, when he's talking to his disciples, he says, look, all of this book is about me. So when we want to hear what Jesus says, then this is where we come to. Because this book is not of the earth, to use John's phrase. It's from above. And surprisingly, the Church of England agrees with me. You read the 39 articles, which is sort of the founding statement for the Church of England. It says this, it says, Both in the Old and the New Testament, everlasting life is offered to mankind by Christ. That's a good phrase, isn't it? Both in the Old and New Testament, everlasting life is offered to us by Christ. So, this guide, Jesus' words, they tell us about eternal life, but of course, actually, it's more than that. Just as an aside, there's all sorts of stuff, isn't there, going on in life where we don't know quite which way to turn. Some of the things that uh, Chris was praying about. And it's just struck me recently uh, how many issues there are flying around where we're very quick to take advice from other people and perhaps not always going back to what the Bible tells us. So the big debates at the moment, even over Brexit, the environment, gender, inclusivity, social justice, it's good that we read up and it's good that we listen to what people have to say. It's good that we listen to the Titans, perhaps. But we always, always, always need to go back to what the Lord is telling us in this book, don't we? We need to base our thinking, root our thinking, in what the Bible says. And that's indeed why we confessed earlier, didn't we, that we have not heeded always what is written in the Scriptures. John is saying here, Jesus' words are truth. And if we want that truth, this is where we're going to find it. Well, that was one implication. Second implication, though, was if Jesus is different and if Jesus speaks um, God's truth, and then we hear verses... Like John 3.16 we had earlier, 
whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life. That's what Jesus says to us. Then our next decision, if you like, is what are we going to do about that? Because we have a choice. When we hear Jesus saying that, and we say, well, he speaks the truth, well, do I believe that or not? It's that, am I going to eat the bug moment, isn't it? Do I accept this offer of eternal life or not? Well, in fact, John says, most people don't. Now look at verse 32. John says, no one believes. Well, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, isn't it? Because he goes on to verse 33 and says, well, some do. But that is still the case, that the vast majority of people don't believe. There are apparently 7.7 billion people alive in the world at the moment, and 2.3 billion are Christian. So a third of the world at the moment follows the Lord Jesus. Two-thirds have chosen to ignore or reject him. And the Bible describes that as like driving down this road, like driving down a broad road to destruction. Because that's what we've got at the end of verse 36. Verse 36 says uh, that if we reject believeth Jesus, we will not see life, but we will endure God's wrath. It's a very old-fashioned concept, isn't it? Wrath. We like to think of Jesus as being all love and cuddly bar lambs and stuff like that. But it's just not what the Bible says. It's just wrong. Wrath is God's present attitude to everything that is sinful. He will love the sinner, but his anger will be directed against those who ignore him, those who rebel against him. That's a recurring theme right to the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. may not be popular nowadays, but that doesn't make it wrong. I like this quote from one commentary. He said, without wrath, we have a weak, flabby, sentimental, immoral, indulging of ourselves to our own ruin. They're quite strong words, but they're good words, aren't they? Point is, Jesus came to save us from that ruin. That is the whole point of Jesus' ministry. That's the whole point of John's Gospel. Jesus takes the punishment that we deserve. God's wrath is on Jesus instead of on us. All we've got to do is accept that offer. It's what they were showing earlier. Matt was showing, putting his load on the cross like that. That's what the Bible describes, not as this broad way leading to destruction, but at this this narrow path that leads to safety. And that's the famous bit of verse 35. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Very simple, isn't it? That's all that's required, is to believe in the Son. And eternal life isn't something that's tedious and monotonous, that sounds a bit like Groundhog Day going on and on and on. Some of the things in the Bible that describe eternal life talk about a a, a relationship, an accepting relationship, a loving relationship with our Creator. It's being described like starting a new life, born again. Jesus talks about parties and feasts, talks about beautiful countryside at peace, safe cities, Stable environment, no fear, no sadness. Eternal life is something really to be looked forward to. And it's something that starts now. That's why if you look at verse 33, it says that when we accept Jesus, we certify that God is truthful. Once we accept Jesus, something changes. That's what 
Philip was talking about last week. Something changes and we begin to see the beginning of that eternal life. And then we discover for ourselves what John is telling us here. That these promises are true. What Jesus says is true. And what Jesus says is true because he is not just a man, but he's God. His words right through the Bible, they're trustworthy. He offers us eternal life. He offers us escape from God's wrath. And it's up to us what we do with that offer. Let me just pray as we finish. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Thank you that your words are truth. Thank you that you offer us escape from the wrath that we rightfully deserve. We just pray that we will choose that narrow way. Amen.